So just remember the next three weeks. Thank you, sir. The next three weeks, next week is going to be dedicated uh, to our work with those who are experiencing homelessness. And then the next week, we're going to have uh, John Pavlovich is going to be with us. And we're also going to have um, our transitional update, just kind of re looking at our budget and our vision and everything practically how we're going to accomplish all of that and then the next week pastor john from unity is going to come and greet us and going to speak that morning i'll actually be in seattle for one of our with one of our sister churches east lake church on that sunday so that's the next three sundays um you guys have these we had 42 of these filled out last week that means some of you are abstaining I don't know if it's the age thing or not, but please be bold, be strong, be psychologically healthy, and be willing to put down your age on here. That includes date of birth, so fill these out, and if you don't want to do that, just leave that uh, be, but honestly, we need all of your information here, so we're going to do this for the next couple of weeks, but fill this out. This helps us serve you as a church a whole lot, a whole lot better. All right, let's pick up where we left off before we go to the Lord's Supper tonight and talk about our vision as a church community. A church generally has three identities. We touched on this at just a cursory level last week, but a church has three identities, and this is probably true of any nonprofit organization, maybe true of any business, but specifically to a church, there are three identities that we have to concern ourselves with. The first as a church um, is our theological identity. And we spent the last, the last couple of weeks talking about our theological identity. We have a very distinct theological identity. Uh, it is no secret that I believe, and many of us believe here, that there is a reformation, a theological reformation happening within the Christian church. Some would say it's even an extension of the Protestant Reformation that started some 500 years ago. But there is a reformation happening in the Christian church, and I think it's a necessary, I, I know it's a necessary one, and I think we're a part of it. And that reformation is moving from the idea of inherent separation and the need for human reunion with God to a model of inherent union with God. Uh, human beings are not born separate from God in need of reunion, but the true message of Christian salvation is helping people understand who they are, understand that they're safe, understand that their identity is always, has always been that of a child of God. So we talked a lot, I don't have to go back into all of that, we talked a lot about Grace Point's particular place specific role in this idea of theological reformation in the church so we have a distinct theological identity here at grace point and it's one that we wish and hope that all of you understand i think you understand it but not only that we understand it but that we be able in i don't mean to trivialize this but in some sense of a elevator speech that we be able to regurgitate it when people say tell me a little bit about your church you don't just say we're down on 5125 Franklin Pike, our name is Grace Point, but you're able to say, yes, Grace Point believes and proclaims and be able to explicate that idea of inherent union with God. It's very, very important, and we'll be talking about that more in the coming months and hopefully helping with that. But with that said, and this is what I wanted to address this week, with that said, every church after their theological vision 
after their theological nuance, their idiosyncrasies theologically are defined, every church must not only have a theologically driven vision and mission, but every church has to have some sense of a practical vision or a practical mission of how they're going to accomplish that theological vision. If our idea abstractly is that all human beings have union with God and simply need to be made aware of that great news, how are we going to accomplish that? And so that speaks to the second identity of a church. The identity of what it means to be a church, what it means to operate as a church. To take the abstract and the philosophical, the theoretical, and bring it solidly into the practical. Now, a lot of you, if you took the time, you probably could do this presentation for me if you've been around the church very long. But I just want to remind you some, of some things that we know, but we really need to focus on and make sure that we understand. After 49 years of life in the church, interestingly, 33 of those professionally spent in the church, there are some things that I understand we must do as a church, and it has nothing to do with the fact that we're liberal or progressive, that we're post-evangelical or mainline, but there are some things that every church, no matter their theological nuance, there are some things that we as a church have to do. And it doesn't matter if you're Grace Point or Unity or Oak Hill Assembly of God or Brentwood Hills Church of Christ or the Greek Orthodox Church just up the road. It's interesting. We are on Church Road, aren't we? Franklin Pike is Church Road. Talk about a smorgasbord of churches. There is a smorgasbord of churches on this road. Every one of them are theologically nuanced and different, but every one of them do some things uh, that are common denominators amongst churches. And I just wanted to point these out to you tonight, and I, I don't mean to be overly practical, but the Apostle Paul said sometimes we can get so complex that we're removed from the simplicity which is in Christ. And I, I don't want us to miss what it means to be a church. When you think about what it means to be a church, uh, there are depending on how you divide the pie, and I don't know if all of you have the vision to be able to see this, but let me, let me draw these up here just to give you a visual and an audible. These are the things as we, depending on how you look at it, rebuild or build a church. Because we are right now building a church. And... There's a bit of a paradigm shift that's having to happen for a lot of the folk in this church who've been around for a while. Some that have been around for a while are still, if they're not careful, looking in the rearview mirror with a sense that we're salvaging something. We are not salvaging anything. We are poised and posed to build something very fresh and new with the gift of a foundation, which is all of you. And as we're poised and posed to do that, there are some things that we have to understand. As we're building this new church, these are things that are not being done perfectly. Um, some of them are barely being done at all. But in the weeks and months to come, these are the things that we're going to have to get up to speed on. And we're not going to be able to hire them done. I'll speak to that in just a minute. It's up to us to get these things done. When you talk about a church, what are the indispensable, irrefutable things that a church absolutely 
has to do. And if it doesn't do these things, then it's not a church. I'm not going to list these in any order of priority, but if it were priority-based, um, the first one that I'm mentioning probably would get the lead on this page. These are things that we, everybody say we. These are things that we have to do. If you're going to be a local church, if you're going to call yourself a Christian church, you have to make children and youth a priority. We really have no higher call than to spiritually nurture our children, specifically those birthed through 18. Anytime I've ever hired a children's pastor or a youth pastor and I've sat with them, I have always told them the first thing that you've got to do as a children's pastor or a youth pastor. Now this may not swallow well in the beginning, may not sit well in the beginning, but please hear me out. Anytime I've sat with a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed new youth pastor or children's pastor, and Lee, you've pastored a lot of churches, you know this is true. When they look at me and they ask the question, what do we have to do? What's our number one priority? Obviously, it's an obvious answer that, well, you've got to spiritually nurture and teach our children, you know, the ways of Christ. But I always tell them, first and foremost, you have to make church fun. You have to make church something that these kids enjoy. Ferline, you were a teacher for years. You weren't just teaching kids communications or accounting or whatever it was you taught over there at Overton for all those years. You were trying to put a love for education in the heart of those children. Mary, as an educator, you not only want your kids to learn the three R's, you want them to learn somehow a love for learning. Our children post 18 are going to do a lot more spiritual formation than they do in their first 18 years. So the first thing that we're going to have to do is give them an experience of church and spiritual community, religious community, that they're not averse to. There are a lot of people, and you don't have to raise your hand, but there are a lot of people who grew up in the Christian church with such a distasteful experience. I look around at people like the Lefebvre sitting here. Forgive me for pointing you out. The Lefebvre's are an interesting um, type of people here at Grace Point, and they're not uncommon. These people did not, they're some of our best people. Gary made me a good peach pie the other day. You may be one of the patron saints in this place for the rhubarb pies and the peach pies you make me. They didn't go to church for 30 years. How do good Christian people not go to church for 30 years and then love church so much? Well, I know exactly how they do that because I grew up my whole life with a very averse feeling toward church. I can literally tell you, not everybody had this experience, but on Saturday afternoons, I began to get this ominous feeling, Steve, hanging over my shoulder knowing Sunday morning was coming. And the only thing that made Sunday morning palatable, the horrible experience of church, was that most of the time my mom and dad would grease the experience by stopping at Batten's Donuts on the way. 
and we would get enough donuts and donut sugar in us that it made church tolerable. The number one thing we have to do for our children is give them an experience that when they leave here, tell me as a parent, you're not just trying to see your children memorize the 12 disciples' names. There's nothing you want more than for your children to leave church, get in the car with you and say, I had a good time. Why? Because when they go through their de deconstructions and Dale, when they get in college and forget about church, you want something to have been placed in them so deep that when they're in their 20s and they start getting married and having children, they look back and say, that's a place I'd like to get back to and raise my children. So we don't have a, a greater responsibility here at Grace Point than to create a children's and youth ministry that not only teaches children about spirituality and Jesus, but gives them such a pleasant experience that they actually when they grow old. Remember what the scripture said? Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Put something in them as young people that when they're old, they have such a, they had such a favorable experience that they still want to do that thing. So children and youth are an incredibly important part of our church's ministry. And we've got to do that together. The second ministry that I think is incredibly important as we look at what it means to be a church is we have got to focus on, and there's a, there's a number of ways to say this, but relationships and community. I don't want to beat this. I, don't, I, was, I almost said dead horse. It's not a dead horse. It's a very living horse. But it is an absolute truth. Listen to me, everybody here, new folk and old folk. If you don't develop meaningful relationships in the church, you won't stay long term. You just won't. Nine out of ten people, no matter what attracted them, no matter how much they enjoy the services, at some point, this model is not a consumeristic Target, Walmart, Kmart model. This model is a model built on the idea of community. And at some point, if we are indeed the body of Christ, Paul described the body of Christ as a group of people, and listen to this adverb, a group of people who are fitly joined together. Do you hear that? Not loosely joined together. In a little while, we're going to take communion together. We're literally going to take the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, in a very intimate act. That act is so intimate, it binds us together as a body. To do things like communion, to do things like prayer, to do things as intimate as a corporate body suggests, and to continue week after week to come to a place that you feel like you're living out the rhyme of the ancient mariner, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink, people, people everywhere, and not a friend to meet. People who continually come to a church after about 18 months to two years, if you are continually going to a church that does intimate things together and yet you do not develop intimate relationships with those around you, it eventually wears thin. And the truth is, if you develop intimate relationships, there are a lot of other nuances and idiosyncrasies about a church that you can put up with if you have people that you actually look forward to seeing and look forward to you have people that actually you believe when they say, how are you doing this week? They actually meant it, and it wasn't just a colloquialism. 
So if a church is going to be a church, things like meal groups are not just, you know, this thing we throw at you and say, jump in, be a part. Things like softball teams, it's not... It, Opportunities to minister together on Habitat for Humanities or work with a homeless, these aren't just abstract opportunities that we say, hey, get involved if you, you know, if you want to, if you don't want to, no worries. The reality is if you don't develop relationships, having fun, ministering, working with, worshiping with people around you whose names you actually know and whose eye you can actually look into, you're never going to be a really meaningful part of that church. And thus, in the evangelical South, we have seen a very consumeristic church community develop. The average stay of an evangelical person in the Southeast at a church is 19 months. We change from church to church to church based upon which church is offering the best deal because we actually haven't developed meaningful relationships with people around us. So I, I can't stress this one enough. Relationship community is something that we have to do. And sometimes when we throw things like meal groups out there, I've had people for many, many years pastoring churches look at me and say, you know, I just really don't need a meal group. Have you ever thought that the question is not just, do you need a meal group? Have you ever thought that the question might be, does the meal group need you? Have you ever thought that the whole thing doesn't revolve around what you're going to get from it, but the guy we follow actually said it's more blessed to give than it actually is to receive? Mary said something in the leadership council meeting this past week that reminded me. When we were at our last campus, one day I was walking down the hall uh, of the children's ministry, and I walked past a woman. She was probably 60 to 65 years old. I walked past her, and I nodded to her, and I remember I didn't really know her, and when I got past about four or five steps, something struck me and said, uh, you really need to pay attention to that woman. Turned out, Mary, she was a principal at one of the elementary schools in Williamson County for like 30 years. A woman who spends her life professionally around children and people, PTAs and teachers. And I turned around. When I turned around to see if she had moved on and where she was, I turned around. She was standing in the middle of the hallway, uh, Linda, looking at me, like she was waiting on me. I went back and I, um, if y'all know me very well, y'all know I'm not a big hugger, right? Some of y'all tease me about that. I'm working on it. I've been in therapy for years and I'm starting to hug more. Um, but I didn't grow up with a lot of hugs. My dad was one of 15 kids and they just kind of survived and... I was 32, I think, before my dad and I ever started hugging. So the journey with hugging and physical touch has been a meaningful one for me. But on that particular day, I felt really strong for Lean as I was standing there talking. We hadn't been talking 30 seconds. And I, I looked at her and said, I, I think you need a hug. As I hugged her, Steve, in my ear, this principal of 30 years said, that's the first human touch I have had in over six months. And I couldn't imagine it, Michael. Six months. I, I thought to myself, I have more human touch than I want. How does a person find themselves in a place where they can go six months without human touch? See, the question as it relates to relationships and community is not do you have so many friends you don't need a meal group? One of the questions in the church is, do you need to be in a meal group because there's people like that woman 
who have found themselves in a place. The psalmist said one of the beautiful things about the church is that God literally takes the solitary and puts them in community. And it just may be that the chief question isn't whether you need the group. It may be whether the group needs you. And I could spend a lot of time on that. But I'm just telling you, we can do a weekly service really well and sing really great and preach good messages. But if we don't do this, we're not a church. We're a gathering of a bunch of people. So we've got to facilitate. Everybody say, we. we. You're not hiring a group of people to do this for you. It's we now. Um, the third thing, and I'll go a little bit faster, that we have to do as a church, and this, this one has a lot of names. I grew up, and I still don't mind the name. I grew up with it called Missions. Anybody grow up with missions? Your church had a missions program? It's fine with me. Um, some people call it outreach. Some people call it social justice. Some people call it social action. And this church has always done pretty well with this. But going forward, as we regroup, as a group of a few hundred people, we have to regroup around the idea that we cannot just take care of one another. We just cannot... We can't just be ingrown, looking at one another, trying to satisfy our own needs. But we have to figure out ways to be involved beyond the walls of this church, in our community, to literally reshape the social landscape of our world. And I, I, the word social is so innocuous. But when I say social, I'm just talking about the interactions of humans with interactions with, with other humans. We have to figure out how to be involved in a meaningful way. That's why we're thinking, as ELCA takes over our social action, social justice, ELCA Hoffman, our director of these things, she calls it love and action. I think that's a really good term. We're thinking about how we can really invest in a meaningful way, not spread ourselves so thin that we water ourselves down, but we really invest deeply and make a mark with some people and uh, some ministries. And uh, we have four or five that I think have become prevalent for us uh, because of Ron Miller and uh, his ministry, Timothy's Gift. We really think one of the ministries that we're going to be investing in deeply around here is uh, ministry to the incarcerated and even prison reform. Because some of our people like Justin and Steve and Roy have been involved in ministry to those who are experiencing homelessness, we think that one makes sense to us. And we're really excited about the fact that we're going to join with Room in the Inn and we're going to, we're going to minister to our children, our youth, uh, you guys. We're going to sign up here in uh, literally next week to really uh, do a profound work with Room at the Inn. It's not just Room at the Inn. The other ministry, Steve, Open Table, which you guys will be talking about more. Room at the Inn, we literally bring the homeless to us through the winter months so we can minister to them. We'll have a Friday night where we feed them a meal. The next morning we'll feed them a warm breakfast. We'll give them a lunch and then they'll be taken back, literally taken back to the streets. Uh, and they'll be put out in the sunshine and then brought back to another church community in the dark uh, to weather the winter months. Every winter in Nashville, we lose probably how many people? 80. 80, 80 to 100 people die every winter. Um, and our church is going to be one of a couple hundred churches who take people in. That's just one of the things we'll do. Prison reform, um, 
the ministry to the homeless, probably once every couple of months to three months, we're just going to dedicate an entire service to say, here's a need. Kathy, probably one of these Sundays will just tell you, take a Sunday and tell us about the sauna. Tell us about these children that you minister to. If we, listen, you want to talk Christianity? Jesus said, I'll go ahead and tell you at the end of the book, this is the answer to the question. When I get to the end, whatever the end looks like, Jesus said, I'm going to say, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was stranger, I was naked, I was a prisoner, and you took care of me. And while religions and denominational leaders are wanting to finally be vindicated on their theological ideas and whether sprinkling was right or immersion was right or views of the end time, Jesus said, I'm just going to tell you, when I get to the end, all I'm going to say is I was hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, prisoner, sick, and you took care of me. And people are going to look at him and say, when did we ever see you in one of those conditions? And Jesus is going to say, well, here's the whole deal. As much as you did it to anyone who was in that situation, you did it to me. And, even, and maybe frighteningly, he's going to say, as much as you didn't do it to them, you missed an opportunity to do it to me. You want pure Christianity, pure religion? James 1 said it's to visit the fatherless in their affliction, our widows in their affliction, and the fatherless, to minister to them. So a church that doesn't do this well um, really does not deserve to be called a church. So that's one of the things everybody say we are going to have to do. Um, the other, let me run through these quickly, is fiscal financial. We haven't begged in a while around here about money. Next week we're going to give an update about our finances and our budget. But a church that is not generous in their finances and a church that is not physically responsible does not deserve to carry the name of Christ. So we have to do finances well and I think this church does finances well and we'll catch you up on that next week but we have to be generous in terms of finances. I have never seen a prevailing church that is always struggling financially. I've never seen a prevailing church where the leadership is always having to beg people and plead people. As Dr. Robert Schuler, you remember Robert Schuler in the Hour of Power, I used to go out uh, periodically to visit with him and be in schools that he would teach, uh, small kind of continuing ed schools for graduate level ministers. And I remember one day Dr. Schuler looked at us and he said, if you're having to beg for offerings, you don't have a money problem, you've got an idea and a vision problem. And if you get the vision and the idea right, you will never have money problems. So if we find ourselves in a place where we are continually having to beg and plead for money, then we have got to ask ourselves, are we doing the other parts of the church right? Because the reality is nobody here needs to give out of rote, legalistic obligation. We need to give out of abundance. We need to give out of a generous, sacrificial spirit that says we are giving to something that is meaningful. So we need to be strong in terms of fiscal and financial health. The other thing we have to do, another thing we have to do really well as a church you might call this something else, but I'm still fine with the term of corporate worship. One of the things the church has been doing for 2,000 years is we gather together and we focus on God and one another. 
We are a group of people who pray together, we sing together, we study together, we learn together, and periodically, and a lot of people have trouble with this word because they think it somehow implies a narcissist in the sky who wants us coming together to tell him or her how wonderful they are, and that's not my understanding of worship. When I think of God, when I think of God, the two sentiments that I normally have immediately in just kind of a knee-jerk as it relates to the divine is I have in relation to God a sense of awe and a sense of gratitude. I have a sense that I am created, that I come from something, I come from someone, I come from somewhere, and to that someone I am grateful. And God to me is a vast mystery and so I feel a lot of awe and I feel a lot of gratitude and to be able to come together with a group of people who feel those similar sentiments toward God and express that in song and prayer and reflection I think is a meaningful thing and so that's why Saturday at 515 you're not watching college football right now how many of you grew up knowing that you had to go to church right did you grow up with a legalistic obligation to church I literally grew up feeling like God had a ledger sheet and kept attendance. And my greatest fear was that we might miss church and the rapture took place. Because if you miss church for a ball game and the rapture took place, there was no possibility of going to heaven from a ballpark. So I had this horrible sense that you've got to go to church to go to heaven. I don't have that sense anymore. But David said something in the Psalms that's really true to me. David said, Lord, you are magnified in the midst of your congregation. And magnification does not mean to make something larger. It simply means to make clearer that which already is. And so magnification, you people coming together with you, hearing bread break and watching people take communion and remembering we're the body of Christ, it doesn't make God bigger to me, it just zooms in on the reality of life and the goodness of life and the reality, the mystery of God, and it magnifies what is. So corporate worship is something we really need to do well. And then finally, um, we need to do, and this could be called, again, uh, some people call this pastoral care, but folk, don't miss this one. And I just got to say about this church, we do it really well. Congregational care means that we're not just taking care of those outside of the building, but congregational care means when somebody's sick here, when somebody's having a baby here, when somebody's having a funeral here or a wedding here, this church tends to it. And the reality is, it is a horrible feeling, and some of you have experienced this, to be a member of a congregation and in your hour of greatest stress or greatest trial, the church does not even acknowledge that. There is nothing quite as powerful as when you are in your hour of trial or difficulty or pain, when the people that worship with you and work with you and love and learn with you, when those people actually show up in your hour of need and take care of you. And Paul said it well in 1 Corinthians 11 when he said, this is the idea of the body of Christ. If the hand hurts, the foot does too. And if the foot is celebrating, then the hand is celebrating. And as a church, 
Barbara Hendricks and Mandy Marshall are two of our ladies here in the church and Tommy they're having knee surgery in the next couple of weeks and they both told me these are older ladies here in our church they're not old they're just older and they told me that they're going to be out for six weeks I asked both of them I said do you need anything and you know what both of them told me they said nope everybody's got us covered we think we have too much they were talking about y'all if a church is going to be a church and we're going to take care of everybody outside of us and we're going to gather in here and talk about how great God is and then let a single mom sit on the pew beside us struggling to put shoes on her children's feet and worry about keeping it 78 degrees in the summer and 64 degrees in the winter because of electric and gas bills and not care about that then we're not a church congregational care says we take care of the Barbara Hendrixes and the Mandy Marshalls who don't get to come to church and their legs are up in the air and they're rehabilitating from a knee surgery we got to show up for one another in the hour of need and then the last two and uh, these are again no order of importance We've got to do education well. And one of the goals, one of the visions for this church is to have so many classes through the week, so many opportunities for learning uh, that you literally don't know how to pick amongst them. We've got to do education and spiritual formation well. And then finally, the last thing is we've got to do communications well. Some people call this marketing. Some people call this proclamation. But we have good news to share, and we're doing something really special here at this church, and we not only need to internally communicate well, and communications is one of our real deficits around here, we not only have to communicate well internally, we've got to communicate well externally, and we've got to tell people in this community what we're doing, what the good news is, and what opportunities they would have to experience the love of God among us. We've got to do proclamation well. These are the eight areas of a church. And I just, wanted, I just want to tell you before we close and go to the Lord's Supper. Our leadership council and our staff, please hear me. We are working our backsides off as literally a new church in every one of these areas. We spent eight hours together as a leadership council last week looking at the, these areas. Tomorrow night we have a leadership council meeting. Our leadership council, board members, elders, whatever you want to call them, they literally are dividing these categories up amongst themselves and are taking personal responsibility to develop out these ministries in our congregation. I right now could take 30 minutes to tell you what we've been doing for the last eight weeks in every one of these categories. We are working hard and I got to tell you, we're not doing any of these as well as we need to do them right now because this is a new church. It really is a new church. And these things don't get done for free and they take time to do. And here's the last thing I want to tell you in relationship to that. You're the one that's going to have to do these things. Because in the beginning of a church, and this really is the beginning of a church, Generally, in the beginning of a church, when you start a church, you have a small group of people 
who are so enthused and so excited, they are called the blood, sweat, and tears community of a church. In the beginning of a church, you have a blood, sweat, and tears group of people who literally are so sold out to the vision and so sold out to what that church is supposed to be, they literally take responsibility for these things, and as volunteers, they work themselves to an inordinate place, to an inordinate level, they work themselves to death, making sure these things happen well. And what generally happens in the life of a church is in the beginning of a church, when you start a church, there's so much excitement that a group of blood, sweat, and tears people commit, and they do these things, and some of you people have been blood, sweat, and tears in other congregations. Some of you have been blood, sweat, and tears people in other congregations, and after you got through being blood, sweat, and tears people, you said to yourself, I ain't never doing that again. Can you say amen? Or oh me. Some of you have been there. Blood, sweat, and tears people are people who bind to the vision, and in the beginning of a church when there's not money to do it, they do it with the elbow grease and heart grease that... It's really hard to explain, except just their love for the church and their belief in the vision. Generally, what happens in a congregation, and I've seen this happen twice in my lifetime, is the blood, sweat, and tears people work so hard that they get these up and running. And, and I've never seen a church that makes straight A's in all of these, but I have seen churches get off the ground and become prevailing churches and I've watched a blood, sweat, and tears group of people, even at Grace Point 14 years ago, get a congregation to a place where there were five A's, two B's, and a C. And that's a good report card. But I, tell you, I want to tell you what happens. The blood, sweat, and tears people get these things up and running. And after they get them up and running, they start getting tired. But about the time they start getting tired, their labor of love starts producing and other people begin coming to the church because of the work of the blood, sweat, and tears people. And the first wave of people who come in kind of join in and help out with this stuff. But eventually a wave of people come in who are very consumeristic. And they're looking for another church to do these things well. And they come in and they don't commit to these things. But enough people to get... This ha has happened hundreds of times in this city. Enough people gather together because somebody got these things up and running. Enough people gather together that the offerings get big enough that the blood, sweat, and tears people finally replace themselves. Here's the way we do it over and over again in the church. They replace themselves with hired staff. And instead of giving time and being involved and building the body of Christ, enough offering, enough income happens that a church begins to hire these things done. And there is no doubt some of these things need professional, uh, resp professionally responsible people and they do need hirings. But Bill Hybels said often the blood, sweat, and tears phase of a church is replaced by what's called the steroid phase of a church. And the steroid phase of the church is the era of false growth when there's enough money to hire enough professional clerics, Jennifer. You've been one of them. We hire people to do the work of the ministry. And the steroid ministry is the ministry 
that flexes, the muscles grow large, and the church grows for a while. But the problem with steroids is the, the fast growth of muscle is generally followed by organic failure because the church was never supposed to hire the work of Christ done. The fivefold ministry is supposed to build up the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry. And where Grace Point is right now is we have a sense of blood, sweat, and tears, but nothing like we had 14 years ago. And I'll tell you why. Because in our process of theological reformation and in our process of getting to this place of being a post-evangelical, liberal, progressive church, in our 14-year history, we have been beat up enough that it has, it, has, um, it has beleaguered us. It has wearied us. And this church right now, fortunately, is not going to be built on a blood, sweat, and tears group of people because a church should never be built on a blood, sweat, and tears group of people. The body should never be 10% of the people doing 90% of the work. And I'll tell you the other good news. We don't have enough money right now to fail in the temptation or fall to the temptation of hiring this done. I never thought I would say, thank God we don't have enough money. But right now, this church has over a million dollars of equity that's going to come to us somewhere between six to 36 months from now. And it has occurred to me recently, I'm glad that money's not in our hand right now. Because I'm afraid we would fall prey to the temptation of spending our way out of our dilemma. When the reality is we don't have a dilemma, we have an opportunity for every one of you to quit looking at the leadership council and the staff saying, what are you doing? And for every one of you to say, here am I, send me. I would like to be a part of a prevailing church and a body of Christ. And I would like to do my part. And did you know the resource of this church is not sitting in the million dollars of equity that's going to be coming to us? And the resource of this church is not sitting in a bunch of blood, a few blood, sweat, and tears, folk. The resource of this church is sitting in the pews right here, right now. So if you're wondering if we're doing anything and if we know what we're doing and if we're actually working behind the scenes, we are working ourselves to death trying to take care of these ministries, but the only way these ministries are truly going to be taken care of is if you take it seriously, if we take it seriously together. Can you say amen? So, to that end, look at it, brothers and sisters, and get involved. Over the next few weeks, as we begin to explain opportunities to get involved and to build this church, Find your place. And so many of these overlap. So many of these you'll be a part of. Some of you will be a part, uh, to a great degree, we'll all be a part of all eight of them. But figure out which of these you can really not only receive from, but you can give to. All right. I think I've said enough. And I could say a whole lot more. I always knew how to start a sermon and preach a sermon. Closing one is one of my great difficulties.